Welcome to the Scary Sangetti. We're your hosts, David Swinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views and opinions of our employers. It takes $53 in AWS servers to earn $1 in crypto the, this latest month. Now, still a better ratio than if you bought an Eld Luna over the last year. Quite the bargain. Quite the bargain. All right. So our first article today, we are talking about exchange servers abused for spam through malicious OAuth applications. It's coming to us from our bytes. There's a new security blog. Oh, this is this is an article about a blog from Microsoft, and now we're summarizing it for you. All right, there's a new security blog from Microsoft about attackers who are using malicious OAuth applications to maintain access. The attack starts with credential stuffing against accounts without MFA. You listened to last week's podcast or the week before his podcast. You really need to turn MFA on. Specifically, they're doing this against Azure Active Directory's PowerShell application. They gain access to admin accounts. They use the PowerShell application to set up the OAuth application. They grant that application global admin and exchange admin roles. Then they use it to modify exchange settings. This allows the attackers to do a few things. They can delete headers and emails, which can prevent email security tools from working. That's a pretty slick idea. <laughs> yeah. Some of those X headers that, yeah, that's interesting. I'd never seen that. Yeah, because if you, you know, the way a lot of security email gateways work is they don't actually do anything with the email. Email comes in, they analyze it, and then they mark the header. And then it gets sent on to the like exchange mail server, or, mail yeah. server, and then the mail server reads the header, and then they take the action. So if the email arrives at the, at the mail server, and then mail server deletes that thing off the header before the mail server actions it, they effectively bypass your security gateway or your email gateway. Wow. I'm always amused when they know more about how security tools work than the security teams. <laughs> As we just demonstrated. And additionally, this allows the attacker to send emails that appear to be from the compromised domain that actually, well, they do come from the compromised domain. They're just not sent by anybody in that domain. So I'm kind of disappointed by them. They went to all this effort for this very interesting new method of manipulating email rules, and they just used it to create a spam campaign. But I see other potential uses. So one way might be journaling rules. For anybody that's unfamiliar with those, this is a way for Office 365 to copy emails to a second address so that the person where the emails are being copied from has no idea this is happening. So maybe if you knew who the finance folks were, or maybe you could look through the gal and pick out the people who are in the finance department, you can set up a journaling rule to send a copy of all their emails somewhere else. Then if you decided you want to do some sort of invoice scam, you could probably create inbox rules, server-side inbox rules, if you had access to the, the exchange admin. So redirect all the good ones away from the finance people while you're sending them your malicious ones. I wonder if they can, they can probably remove the external tag from email sent. That's probably based on the headers or based on something in exchange. Or even better, I'm sure you could send internal emails to unsuspecting folks from, I mean, this is, this sounds like you basically compromised every user in the entire environment. Yeah. I mean, using this for spam seems so wasteful <laughs> because I mean, 
If you look at, you know, we talked about many weeks ago, the amount of money that you can make from BEC. Yeah. So you do this with the proper company and you could use this to make a, a, a decent amount of cash through BEC and have it really diff make it pretty difficult for them to be able to track it back down. And if you get into the right organization, you might be able to sell a spear phishing campaign to other criminals to say that, <laughs> hey, I have high level access to this domain. I can send email as anybody and I can spear fish any other particular organization, which is coming uh, and make it look like it's coming from this domain. And you could probably sell that at a, at a premium if you use, if you spearfish rather than sending spam, because spam is going to be found out. Spearfish may or may not find out depending on how well the fish is written. You know, and even thinking about what you're saying here. So you're, so if you were doing a business email compromise with this, and if you had the exchange admin role, you could even... Like, because normally when someone does a BEC, they compromise one account, they set up email forwarding rules and, you know, email inbox rules to shuffle off emails for that one account. But you could pretend to be like eight accounts. You could like send the invoice to, hey, we changed this and then send an email pretending to be the CEO saying, hey, I just talked to so-and-so at the company. They said they changed the email or they changed the invoice numbers. Like you could, and then you could act like then set it up so that if they emailed the CEO back saying, hold on, you know, we need to follow our procedure. Well, now you're, you can be the CEO too. <laughs> like, oh, yep, mm -hmm. everything's great. I'm in a meeting right now. I left my work phone at my office, but you can call me at this number and then combine that with the, uh, the fake voice stuff we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know. I wonder if you could rewrite the body of messages with this. Oh my God. Oh, have it, have it forward you. Like whenever somebody sends an email to them, it forwards to you and you have the chance to edit it and then send it on. And it looks like it came from them. Something like that. So this was the plot of a book I read about six months ago. I was actually thinking about suggesting it for one of our security book reviews. It's called Avogadro Corp. And it's pretty obviously Google Corp, but they create an AI and the purpose of the AI is to rewrite messages based on the recipient. The AI looks at all the emails the recipient ever got, and it looks how they responded to them. And it figures out like, how do, how best do they respond? What kind of persuasion do they best respond to? And it will rewrite your emails to them, modifying it. So, you know, maybe they prefer a, a brief, like they want to hear the you know, bottom line up front. And then other ones, it's, you know, they want to hear, how's your kids doing? They want to do some chit chat before. And would like rewrite it so it would be most effective. But this is the opposite. This is rewriting it so it would be the most malicious. And effective. <laughs> and effective. <laughs> of course, you'd have to be your watching phone. it. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. This could this could get really nasty. But And this is important because OAuth applications are not what most SOC folks are watching right now. Can you imagine not knowing that this even exists, but knowing that someone's compromised? You know, such and such is like, I never sent that email. And the finance people are like, what are you talking about? You told me that you sent this. And then you guys are looking over the email infrastructure, trying to figure out what happened. And you have no idea that they're in there. They could monitor the incident response. I know everybody always talks about setting up a separate function for incident response and, uh, you know, responding, but most companies that I've seen don't. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if you can set up like server-wide rules or server-wide searches to, you know, look for anything, any mentions of certain people or certain accounts or incident or something like that. Yeah, this could make it really difficult. So checking the Microsoft documentation, they do say that you can create customized auto automated notifications if someone creates an app with a high permission level 
and Defender for Cloud Apps. And there are some built-in alerts as well. I don't think I saw this article. I saw another article earlier and I actually went and poked around a little bit in Azure to see what, what the alerts are. And there are four types of alerts, misleading OAuth op name, misleading publisher name, malicious OAuth op, and suspicious OAuth op file. And I looked at a couple of these, specifically misleading OAuth app names. <laughs> they have so little information. They have the OAuth, OAuth app name. They have the person who initiated it. And that is it. There's so little just, information in there. Did we just talk about this last week? <laughs> yes. Oh, need to fix this. Yeah. And maybe there's Here, another place in Azure where you can go look up that other data. But from the alert, I can't tell that. From the alert, I get like three pieces of information. I've got to try and figure out if it's malicious or not. It's almost like, hey, something happened. Go take a look <laughs> at this thing. You know, that's the, that's the level of detail you're getting in these kind of logs. It's really. Yep. Terrible. It is so bad. Uh, so why does this matter? Well, this is a newish vector. It's not completely new. I've been hearing rumblings about it for the last couple of months, but it's one that a lot of people are not watching. And what you should do about it is obviously MFA everywhere and, you know, hardware tokens where you can. And then what we talked about last week, take a, take a listen to that for more information on MFA. If you didn't already, you should have slow down login attempts to prevent credential stuffing. Um, you probably don't want to do a lot of places do the three and you fail, but when there's so much credential stuffing online now that can end up locking out a lot of accounts inadvertently. What's better is a geometric slowing progression. If it allows it, not every, not every login obviously allows this, but you know, after two failed logins, you slow down it for a second. After three failed logins, you slow down for two seconds. After four failed logins, you slow it down for four seconds. That very quickly makes credential stuffing almost impossible if you right. have the ability to do that. Yeah, because it's a slight annoyance for an actual user who makes the mistake. Yeah. But for someone who's trying to beat, do a brute force, it really puts a big, there's <laughs> a real big problem for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When they hit like a login, like a credential number 30. <laughs> right. Yeah, so instead of able to do 90,000 attempts in a sec in a, in a minute or something, you know, they're yeah. down to, you know, 50 or 25 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Especially really if it keeps going up. That. Yeah. Although that can create a denial of service condition for your users. So you probably do want to stop somewhere like 10 seconds between tries or 15 seconds between tries. Mm -hmm. Like that's annoying for a user, but that's not rage inducing. If they try to log in, it's like 9,000 minutes before you can try to log in again. <laughs> you might want to consider calling the help desk. <laughs> yeah. And they also mentioned conditional access, such as limiting it to specific IP ranges or devices. Right. So if you have, you know, admin subnets or jump servers or something like that, you can do that. You know, they also, uh, there's some conditional access in Azure as well about suspicious device login if a new device they've never seen logs in of course if you're if you've got you know 150,000 employees heck even if you've got 10,000 employees that probably triggers quite a bit because people getting new laptops logging in from their home computers they got a new phone uh that does get generally you don't want to prevent them from logging in when that happens you want to trigger an additional check of some kind maybe that's when they have to plug in their hardware token as if they log in with a new system all right. So the next article is hackers using PowerPoint mouse over trick to infect system with malware. And this is from the hacker news. So the Russians have deployed a new code execution method that uses a mouse over movement in PowerPoint to trigger a malware install. So the victim needs to have the PowerPoint in presentation mode though. And then the movement of the mouse triggers the PowerShell to run. I mean, I always put my PowerPoints in presentation mode before reviewing that. Doesn't everyone? Oh, that's how I edit my... Oh, no, you can't do it. <laughs> Presentation mode is, 
He's practically gone the way the, the dodo from what I've seen. A lot of people that are even presenting don't put it in presentation mode. Yeah, I know I don't. I have a I have a big wide monitor, and if I put it in presentation mode and share my whole screen, everybody complains because of how small my screen is. I think you're just bragging now. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's only 44 inches. It's <laughs> just oh. kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. It's 42. <laughs> All right. So the specific malware uses the Graph API and OneDrive for C2 which is so interesting to me. And, and I totally get why they're doing it. This is dodging all of the proxy blocks. This is dodging all of the you know, most recent domains. We actually, I actually saw some malware very recently that was detected because it used a newly registered domain and they obviously don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can on your proxy, you should be blocking newly registered domain. I mean, oh, anything, yes. certainly anything under 30 days, but maybe even consider 60 or 90 days, but definitely under 30. You should not, you should just block that at the edge. You don't need, you, Absolutely. you don't need that. Nope. And if you do, it's going to be a rare case and you can do it by exception. Yep. For that one time. Yeah. No, the rest of the malware in there seem pretty standard. It uses run DLL to run a malicious DLL. They set a registry run key for persistence. I mean, that was the C2 part and the PowerPoint parts were the two interesting things here. I guess they can't innovate everywhere all the time. Darn those hackers. So lazy. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting. You know, Ma Microsoft is not doing any kind of malware detection on OneDrive, I guess, unless you turn it on and pay for it, which I mean, seems kind of obvious if you think about it. But that also kind of sucks that they aren't doing broad malware scanning for OneDrive. But that's really because you were see increasingly seeing, you know, malware being delivered from these cloud storage places. And that'd kind of be helpful if, if the cloud storage people were, were actively looking for malware in there. I don't know. So that's an interesting point that you bring up, but like for as many things as create low level detections, I mean, I don't know, what would they, they just have, they probably only, the only thing they could do is just delete it if it triggers a malware detection, right? Well, in, on micro, in Microsoft's documentation, they make references to preventing access to stuff in OneDrive if it's detected as malware, that the only thing you can do is delete it or download it if your company's configuration allows for it. But that's obviously for companies' OneDrives where they're paying for the malware detection on it. It's not like the the, uh, the greater O365 regular people are using. So I mean, you know, if if a if a if a malicious actor has a OneDrive that they're paying for or that they have, and they're hosting malware on there, they're going to have the malware detection turned off or whatever. And the uh, greater Microsoft is not looking at that. Yeah. So that's where I'm kind of going with that. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's frustrating, but that makes sense. But, you know, it sounds kind of silly that, you know, this whole, if it goes into presentation mode and the mouse moves, then you can download the malware. But you know what I was thinking where this might actually work is if the attackers were able to replace an organization's default PowerPoint template. And they actually mentioned in the article about using a template. So, but if they replace the organization's default template, then any new PowerPoint that's created using that template, which everyone is supposed to use in the organization because that's the organizational template with the color <laughs> scheme and the fonts and all that, then you've yeah. got everybody creating, you know, creating these PowerPoint presentations that, that have this potential for malware in it. So even if a small percentage of those people eventually do put that in presentation mode, then you're going to get this to work. 
So what occurs to me, I, I, I didn't think about this until you mentioned it and it's brilliant, but sometimes it's tough to get malware through a email gateway, but it's maybe easier to get credential phishing through because there's nothing to detect specifically. So you can fish somebody and then get on their SharePoint and then just do a search in SharePoint for templates and then go into every one you find and change it. And they may not detect you in there if you don't do anything. If you don't send any invoice phishing or anything, you don't do any business email compromise, you don't do any scam, they may never know you were there. And then all of a sudden malware infections start popping up all over the enterprise. Right. Hey, that's wicked. That is really wicked. Yeah, and the idea that they would track that down in a template, that would probably be pretty hard. They'd be playing whack-a-mole for months. Yep. And finding a template's not hard because they have a different extension. So you don't even have to look for a keyword or anything. You just look for that different file extension for the template. That's incredibly wicked. And I'm very proud of you, David. That is <laughs> Thank you. And if you'd like to donate my Bitcoin addresses, but All our right. best recommendation oh. is don't use them. Don't use presentation mode and don't use your mouse. Yep. It's completely unnecessary. All right. For our next article, final article for today. Crypto miners hijack $53 worth of system resources to earn just $1. This is from Bleeping Computer. I'm actually kind of disappointed. We had a bunch of registered articles last week and we didn't have any this week. This one sounds like it should be uh, almost there. Anyways, there's some researchers who did a study and they estimated that criminals hijacking cloud infrastructure costs companies $53 for every $1 worth of cryptocurrency they mine. Uh, generally speaking, this research was limited to criminals who spun up modified OS images containing XM rig and mining Monero. They and they they did this analysis. They looked at ten wallet IDs they could confirm belonged to attackers, and then they matched how much it cost the victims to how much was transferred to those wallets from the miner on the machine. So there were ten wallets. I've got a couple examples here. Wallet number one received $26 and it cost the victims $1,430. Wallet number three earned $2,900 and cost victims $153,000. Holy cow. All 10 wallets together held $8,000 in XMR and cost the victims $429,000 or about $11,000 per XMR, worth, which was worth about $150 at recording time. So, that is crazy. <laughs> uh, I guess that's why nobody's doing proof of work anymore. <laughs> anyway, so this is this is a crime where it's actually easy to determine the damage as opposed to some of the other more nebulous ones where you're estimating based on, you know, how many hours it took for somebody to respond and damage to business, to business reputation and stuff like this. So yeah, just you print can, out your bill. <laughs> yeah, you print out your is. AWS bill and you're like, bam, here we go. You know, I wonder if cyber insurance would cover this. I don't know. But I can imagine if this gets much bigger, you know, if this is, I mean, this has been happening for a long time where yeah. people have been stealing resources for this, but it's never really blown up where like on the level of ransomware or anything like that. But I can imagine that if cyber insurance did cover this and it got big where they'd start having and cutting this stuff out of their regular insurance policies as well, when you're talking about, you know, did they have a time frame that for that 153,000? I can't remember if I read that in the article, but you know, those, that, that can those bills can run up really fast, really high. So I can imagine cyber insurance uh, companies or insurance companies that have cyber insurance policies marking this as, you know, this is different or this is an exception that we don't cover this unless you specifically pay extra for it or something like that. 
Yeah. I actually did some of the math later on how long it took. They did mention they did mention that the average amount, the average cost of the EC2 instances and the attacks analyzed was also $11,000, which is kind of weird. And the largest EC2, I spun up the uh, AWS calculator and the largest EC2 instance available in the calculator was $67.29 per hour. So if the median cost was 11,000, that's 163 hours or just over a week for the average company to detect it. So if you can't detect it within a week, they can cost you 11,000 per machine. Now, of course, they don't have to spin up just one machine. They could spin up 10. They could spin up 100. <laughs> it really depends on right. how your environment is set up. You know, reading the notes, because you ran up that $67 to three decimal places, <laughs> I thought it was 67,000. Oh, I was sorry. like, holy cow. I was just copying that from the Amazon <laughs> website. Yeah, I was thinking, holy cow, you can get an instance at $67,000 an hour? Yeah. It, it, but this is, this is so I mentioned before, it's tough to monetize impact, but here's one where it could be easy. You can figure out how much it would cost if an attacker got into your cloud infrastructure and spun up the max number of machines. You just need a couple of variables. Number one, how many machines could they spin up? Number two, how long would it take for you to detect it? And then number three, how much is it worth to protect against that? And if you wanted to, what you might do is you might ask one of your administrators to go in and spin up a machine, maybe like a super cheap one, one of the, you know, four cents an hour machines, and then sit back and wait until somebody notices and shuts it down. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. Of course, spinning up one machine is a little different than spinning up, you know, 20 or 30, 11 K ones. But I think that would, or maybe, I mean, you can even try with 10 cheap ones just to see if someone notices it. Like, are people checking the dashboards daily? Do you have alerts set up? And I'll, I'll get into more of that later. Right. I realized I'm, I'm getting into the, what can you do? What should you do about it? I'm getting <laughs> into that stuff. Which we'll get to in a second. Uh, you know, and this specifically mentioned that, you know, they're using AWS to mine Monero because Monero is a, is a, is a coin that can be mined using a CPU versus like a Bitcoin, which requires GPU to do the mining. I wonder if they could just, you know, would it be possible at this stage to, you know, redo Monero so that you had to use a GPU instead of a CPU in order to prevent this kind of attack? But I think, you know, there's no I real profit in doing that kind of thing, though. Can you, can't you spin up AWS with GPUs, though? Or is it restricted to only the, the, the other, like, special? Because I thought I you could, I thought you could you spin up... For Bitcoin you, mining and AWS. That sounds familiar, but I am not certain about that. There's like a there's like a service I saw. You can't use the free tier. I guess it's because you have to have an attached GPU. But as again, like if you're using somebody else's money, <laughs> you don't care. You don't care. You're just like, yeah, put the GPU on there. Maybe. Here we go. Folks have it correct. Bitcoin mining on the cloud without an ASIC miner does not yield any profit. Well. If you're using somebody else's resources, who cares? So I'm actually kind of surprised they did Monero here versus Bitcoin. Although I guess they're probably looking for the privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they don't care if the cost of the resources outstrip the amount of money that comes out. <laughs> Obviously, $53 for every dollar you get out, man. This I wonder is... what that would be in Bitcoin then. Probably it's... way more disproportionate. I don't know. Is Monero so hard to mine right now? I mean, because no, what I'm saying is the, the cost of running the GPU, I mean, for Bitcoin. So 
you know, if you were to do the same type of exercise for Bitcoin and you're spending up GPUs to do this, it's probably going to be more like $500 a, a dollar or something like that's what I'm saying. Because it's harder to get Bitcoin because, I mean, how many Bitcoin are in existence right now? They only go up to 21 million and every year they half. So it's difficult to get mine Bitcoin as it is. And if you're using, you know, triple or quadruple the amount of resources in order to get that data out, in addition yeah. to paying more for a GPU, I'm saying that that would be even more lopsided uh, to so mine Bitcoin. I'm actually, so I guess this is because of the cost of the AWS, but right now Monero mining is not profitable. It costs about 10%. It's worth about 10% less than the cost of the electricity. So I guess AWS is charging you way more than just the electricity cost for this. It's 53 oh, sure. times as, yeah. but that's actually kind of crazy how much they're charging then. Yeah. And it depends on the jurisdiction, of course, because the cost of electricity is not uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just interesting. It's interesting because I was just wondering if it was an unprofitable to mine Monero at all. And it is unprofitable, but it's barely unprofitable mm -hmm. versus this, which is wildly unprofitable. Right. Huh. I don't know. All right. So what should you do about it? If you're concerned about this, it's probably worth a threat modeling exercise. Like I said, have someone spin up a cheap instance or 10, see if you can figure out when anybody notices. If you have a standard image. You may want to see if you can alert when someone spins up something that's not standard or look at the tiers. Somebody who spins up something that's, you know, $60 an hour. Maybe you typically use the ones that are a dollar an hour or $2 an hour or something like that. Right. So have a, and, and be a good idea to have a, a, a process around how you manage your virtual machines. You know, only spin them up at certain times if they're, if it's not an automated spin up or, you know, have a process that you can then take that process and see what deviations from that process are, you know, limit who can deploy, only deploy with automation or something like that. So you know how to monitor for this when it gets out of control. And of course, make sure you set up a AWS billing alerts. You know, if your bill goes over X, send an alert. So you need to understand what your average, you know, what your cloud instant burn rate is on average so that you uh, can determine those as well. Can they look at the burn rate and alert you on changes in burn rate? Because I'm, I'm just wondering, like, if you're a big company or you have a big cloud bill, like setting it to 10% over your normal bill, like if that happens on the second day of the month, like you've already gone through all of your budget in the first two days or something. But maybe if they could do an change in inflection in the burn rate, like, you know, you're, you're, burn, you're, you're, you're spending up this many and running this many systems and you're billing at an average of maybe a thousand dollars an hour. And then all of a sudden your, your billing changes to $3,000 an hour. I don't know if they can do that. I don't know either. When I, the last time I worked with AWS, it was just a flat number. Yeah. Um, that's, that certainly that's makes sense because not only saying, because that works even better because you can tell on the fifth of the month, if mm. you're over your burn rate. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, just extend out how much have we, how much has it been for the past five days times six and where are we going to be? Right. Rather than waiting till you hit that threshold where you're mm -hmm. at day 15, where you could have scaled back earlier, but now you're at 15 and you're mm -hmm. over budget or you, you know, so that makes a whole lot of sense that you want to do it that way, whether AWS <laughs> has the ability for you to do that or not. I have no idea. And I'm wondering if there isn't some way for a company to work out with AWS, you know, if they get hit with this, if they could go to AWS with some evidence and say, hey, you know, we this happened to us. Can we get a discount or some kind of cut 
of the overall bill because we fell victim to this this problem. You know, maybe we pay fifty percent or seventy five percent or something. As AWS, I'm sure it's like you know, like Goodfellas. You know, fuck you, pay me. So they're perfectly happy whether this happens. You know, whether because they don't care whether the the resources are being used by legitimate customers or not, so long as someone's paying for them. Yeah. Yeah, this makes me think of like of the utilities you go to if there's a leak or something. Mm, right. I don't know. I don't. Sometimes they'll help you out, and sometimes they won't. So. Yeah, I would not hold my breath on uh, being able to get away <laughs> with something like that with AWS, but it would be worth an ask because I mean, if they if you if you just got hit with a bill for one hundred fifty three thousand, you know, if you want to say twenty thousand dollars on it, you know, or you want to get something off that bill, it, I mean, the worst thing that Amazon could say is no, and then you're in the same boat you were before you called them. But you can at least ask them that. Sounds fair. Uh, but that's it for the news articles this week. Thank you for listening to the Security Serengeti podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Serengeti Sec and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.